0: we need salvation from the get-go because without salvation, we're a slave to sin. It's our, it's our only nature.
1: And if we beat one addiction, we will just replace it with another because it it is, as you say, our nature.
0: You know, there's a lot of better addictions out there, you know, normal ones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, and that's, and that's scary. You know, it's like, you know, sin is sin, but not all sin is the same. Mm -hmm. Right. And some consequences of sin are more consequential. It's like, so, um, it can seem like, oh, I'm doing a lot better, but you are still you still have a, a illegitimate solution mm-hmm. that has become your idol. Right. A lot of people who have normal, like acceptable addictions, it's like, well, they just lived their whole life missing the mark of holiness, mm-hmm. right? The only way that we can be uh, holy is for us to have Christ, and then in that we can move towards sanctification.
1: Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to another episode of The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from LFBI and across the Living Faith Fellowship. Many of us, even in the church, have been affected by the topic of addiction. So, whether it be a friend or a family member or our own personal struggles, all of us have at some point in our lives been around or been affected by the ramifications of addictive behavior. Um, Whether it be an addiction to alcohol or drugs or pornography, whatever it might be, the consequences of addictive behavior can be very, very severe and, and can affect many people. And so just by way of context for today's episode, According to the USA addiction statistics, as of 2020, over 37 million people, 12 and older, actively used illicit substances. 13.5% of Americans, 12 and older, have used drugs in the past 30 days. 25.4% of all users of illicit drugs suffer from drug dependency or addiction. According to the Recovery Village Rehabilitation Treatment Center, today, porn addiction or problematic pornography use affects approximately 3 to 6% of the adult population. Up to 65% of young adult men and 18% of young adult women report watching pornography at least once a week, though this amount can be much higher according to them. And so obviously with statistics, there's varying levels of severity and it's sometimes hard to read, but just to create a little bit of an imaginary for for what we're talking about today, it helps you to see that there is a lot of addiction that's taking place in our world. And, And really, we know that since COVID and since the accessibility of the internet and immediate gratification almost everywhere we go, we know addiction is a serious, serious issue in our world and even in our churches. And what do we say? What do we say to our friends and family? How do we minister to people who are stuck in a lifestyle of addiction. So today on our show, we have the privilege of having Jonathan Kindler, faculty professor of biblical counseling here at the Living Faith Bible Institute and licensed therapist at Sound Mind Counseling. And John's done many of these episodes with us where we talk about people's emotional issues, spiritual issues. And so uh, I want to uh, say welcome again. Thanks for being here. Thanks, dude. man.
0: It's good to be here.
1: Can you begin just by telling us about the severity of, of drug and alcohol addiction in the United States? And I know a lot of these people come through your counseling setting mm-hmm. and um, you're, you're always having conversations about this topic with people. So you're very yeah. familiar with it. But help us to understand just how consequential and severe the issue is.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the stats that you gave, man, it's just like, it's staggering to see how uh, it's impacting our culture, how it's it hits people and then just ripples out into their world. And, you know, you, you a lot of the stats that you mentioned are, are similar to some of the things that I've seen in my practice, especially since COVID. It's just it's increased significantly. Some numbers that I I see that's just crazy is like alcohol consumption has increased over 60% since COVID. In 2020, we saw uh, the highest uh, level of marijuana use, um, more fatal deaths than ever before, over 28% um, more, and it's the highest numbers we've ever seen. So it's um, it's insane how, mm-hmm. how uh, it's devastating our, our cultures and our families. And one thing I think's important to, to just name is that um, it's not just the addicted, the addicts that are, are getting addicted, but addiction kind of plays out on a spectrum. And so um, we live in a culture and we've talked about this in previous podcasts where uh, we are uh, pursuing happiness and it, it's cult-like. And so uh, when that doesn't work out for us, um, it creates these downward spirals that I think we can get in today. But um, what we found is, um, you know, the the device that we carry around with us is one of the most devastating uh, uh, drug addictions that we have. It's been called the hypodermic needle of the modern era. Mm. Um, it's devastating our 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 kids, our uh, adolescents, and and our young adults. And so I think that's important to say too that it's not just um, you know, just severe drug addiction, right. but it's something that we all are prone to be uh, pulled into.
1: Yeah. I, you know, when we were young, um, we used to hear about the gateway drug being marijuana use, mm-hmm. right? And so right. marijuana use, um, we, we absolutely know people want to deny this now, but, but to do drugs, even if it's marijuana, it does open a gateway to other forms of, of addiction or drug use. Now, I think today... Uh, just in terms of addiction, our phones are the gateway to all addictions mm-hmm. because we do it with such great regularity. Mm-hmm. It's such an integral part of our life. What it does is it it creates a, a seedbed mm. for adi- other forms of addiction to sprout up because we have already dismissed the addiction to this kind of passive thing. We've already right. dismissed it. It's not a big deal. It's just a part of our life we dismiss that. And so we don't recognize that we actually are cultivating addictive behaviors as a society and as individuals.
0: Right. Yeah. So yeah, it, it normalizes escapism as a reasonable pastime. So Mm -hmm. how are we going to, how are we going to manage pain? Well, we're going to pursue pleasure. What's the most accessible thing? And, you know, escaping to the phone is a, an easy thing to do. And, And once we, you know partake in that long enough um, it doesn't take much for us to then you know venture into other things mm-hmm. i as I think about this topic and I thought about coming and talking to you today, I'm thinking about how like there's no um earthly torment greater than addiction like when I sit with people in my office the the ripple effect the weight the wake of destruction that it has on an individual's life. Uh, their family, their, their relationships with their spouses, their kids, the generational impact, right? You know, you think of a, uh, someone whose great grandfather who was an alcoholic, then abused, you know, their kids, which then became parents who were dysregulated and then didn't know how to raise their, just like the generational yeah. sin that addiction causes. And um, it's something that we've normalized and we've accepted and it's the most accepted form of slavery. Hmm. You know, addiction has become uh, the apex of deception and disillusionment and suffering. And it's our closest counterfeit to hell. You know,
1: hmm.
0: we, we know that hell is a real place, but there are a lot of people who are living hell on earth because they are in bondage to something that they didn't realize was going to take hold of them until it's too late. Hmm. So I think it's really important that we spend some time just... Um, addressing it
1: those are those are really powerful statements and I think i'm thinking about you know in terms of the church this is not an exclusive issue for people outside of the church setting right this is this has found its way mm-hmm. <clears throat> into the culture of churches. The difference might be that in in a church setting there is greater incentive to hide mm-hmm. addictive Behavior that that might be the only difference mm-hmm. is that is that for church members, uh, when they recognize that they have something, um, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of behavior and lifestyle that is unbecoming of a Christian, the easiest thing to do is to kind of tuck that away or hide it between mm-hmm. the, behind religious behavior, sure, and that becomes even worse. It makes the situation worse. It compounds the problem, and mm-hmm. you see this a lot, I suppose.
0: Absolutely, so. I don't know the stats on this, but I, I do know there's two different types of addiction. And, uh, I, you know, if I reflect on it, I would imagine that a lot of people that are active in church body life, if we can say it that way, are more prone to um, not so much substance addiction, which we know to be like ingesting something, alcohol, or some other form of Mm -hmm. illicit drug, uh, but process addiction. So this is habitual behaviors that's, you know, been pursued over time as a a means to an end that then develops, you know, an addictive behavior. And that could be anything from, you know, an eating disorder to pornography addiction. Um, And, and you know, they've done studies where pastors are saying 57% of their church congregation is viewing pornography you know over 50% of men say in marriage that they view it once a month 25% of women you know so it's like consuming even christian culture mm-hmm. uh, so i think you know maybe process addiction would be something that we see a lot of and we kind of dissociate from it we can compartmentalize it we can place it in the back room of our you know m- a mental home, you know, and yeah. place it back there and we can come to church and you don't see it on us. Right. But we have these secret parts of our lives that get hidden in the dark. And then, and you know, we know that, um, sin grows in the dark mm-hmm. so it can slowly take over.
1: So, you know, you mentioned pornography uh, addiction and, and and the idea of that being kind of a process addiction. Um, it seems to be a particularly devastating and, and entrapping form of addiction that that a lot of people suffer from. And the conversations around pornography in the world around us are rapidly changing. Mm-hmm. What is permissible mm-hmm. the, the, in terms of what um, the limitations and the governance over that kind of thing, it just continues to be extended and, and people have more liberty and more freedom and more access than they ever have before. It's mm-hmm. incredible. And for the Christian who believes in purity, mm-hmm. in terms of, of sexual purity before before the Lord and in preparation for uh, a marriage relationship, the fidelity of a marriage relationship, it is, it is ter- it's a terrible thing to get involved with. Mm-hmm. So many people's stories are at age 11, at age 12, and we know in a very vulnerable state, they encounter pornography and it just mm-hmm. swallows them up. It's, they, they're, they're stuck there. And um, And so maybe you can talk to us a little bit about pornography addiction, knowing that it's such a, a big deal in our world right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you you just mentioned like you know, like people being exposed to you know sexual content at such a young age. and it's devastating because it it rewires our brain from pair bonding. So like um, intimacy, the way that God created it, was, you know for there to be this connection between man and woman. And instead it shifts our framework to uh, instant gratification, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So I'm observing this thing happening on a screen, I'm, but it's it's people and it's causing all of these chemicals to, you know, go through my body. And I'm using that as a dopamine button in my life that is injecting all these chemicals. And it's Devastating because now then we see other people as this means to an end and objectify them. And so not only are we, is it devastating our relationships, but it's this, like you said, this incredibly accessible, um, highly effective drug, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's always there right in your pocket. Um, It's endless. So that dopamine button can be hit as many times. Um, You know, it's insane to think about some of these kings of old where. They would have you know concubines of women, um, maybe 300, 400 women a thirteen year old boy can observe and you know consume mm. many times over uh the you know the kings of this world you know they could in back in the day right yeah. it's like what incredible. their power
1: afforded kings yes now a, a child an innocent twelve year old boy right. with a with a phone and and you know a little bit of time on their hands right now has has, you know, the red light district of Amsterdam at their very fingers. For
0: -hmm. free all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, the, the, the impact that has on their brain is, it's devastating. So it's so accessible. Um, it's neurologically rewiring their brain and it makes us these chemical junkies. Right. And, um, what's scary is, you know, they've done these brain scans where they can see the impact of pornography on the brain and they hold it next to you know a real drug addiction our brain doesn't know the difference between porn and drugs and they've also been doing studies on you know the brain uh on you know a video game or mm-hmm. uh, you know mass consuming social media and it's the same thing it deteriorates our brain it rewires our brain and our brain is constantly fiending for yeah. more chemicals
1: yeah and i think what's really significant and we write about this in in our book is that it does damage specifically to the frontal lobe, which the is the part of our brain that's responsible for empathy. And so you mentioned objectification. Mm-hmm. well, if you're if you're slowly ruining the part of your brain that would protect you from objectification, mm-hmm. um as you grow older, your ability to see people in, in terms of their soulishness, mm-hmm. right? Um, their true value before a living mm. God, their true value to us in terms of interpersonal relationship, mm-hmm. that they're not just an, uh, a means to an end, uh, that everybody doesn't serve our very whim, right? Like we are messing up our brains and the way that they're supposed to function. Right. God is trying to build a, a brain in these young men and women that, that would declare love. Right. And empathy. And yet and yet we've introduced this thing mm-hmm. that ero- erodes that ability. Absolutely.
0: They've been, it's it's always wild when we see how uh, science starts to catch up with scripture. So they've been doing these these studies and finding these discoveries that um, are saying that our brain needs balance. So they're calling it this pain-pleasure balance. And mm. we know from scripture that um, sin is enjoyable for a season. And we see in, in Philippians 4 verses 5, it talks about needing moderation. So there's this idea of they're needing to be balance. And we see, you know, Solomon talks about how... You know, when we pursue pleasure all the time, it leads to you know vanity and despair yeah. and depression. And so what they're finding though is when they're we're doing these tests on people, uh, they're finding that the brain operates, the receptors in the brain operate like a, a teeter-totter. So when you pursue something that um provides pleasure, mm. uh then it counterbalances, so you feel this spike in pleasure. And then after you come down out of it, it it counters with pain. So just for reference, um, they say that something like chocolate will increase your dopamine uh, levels by uh, one and a half times. And the pursuit of sex and then actually getting sex is two and a half times. And Mm. nicotine is two, you know, three times. And then something like um, an Adderall or meth, some form of amphetamine is 10 times. So that dopamine button gets pushed so much that the counterbalance we see why when people are, you know, not getting what they want and over time they build a tolerance that they become irritable, dysregulated and miserable and Mm -hmm. depressed. And so when they aren't aware that this is happening in their body, the only solution they have uh, is to continue to push that button. Yeah,
1: the swing swing back, the pendulum swing back is so severe that it creates distress and the only way that they can imagine escaping that distressful feeling mm-hmm. um, is to go back to the thing that brought them the pleasure in the first place. Right. So again, only increasing the, sever- the severity of the circumstances.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and they found that, and on average, it takes around four weeks to find some homeostasis or balance back mm-hmm. in the brain. So you can see people who they they desire to abstain, you know, but they hold their breath maybe two, three weeks without, you know, partaking whatever they're addicted to, and they just can't take it anymore. And so they just get caught more and more in the cycle. And so not only are they building the habit, but they're also growing in despair. Mm -hmm. There's no hope for me. There's no light. And so uh, we see how needful it is for us to have a a more uh, clear foundational understanding of how to overcome addiction.
1: And speaking to that, I think is important. You know, I think one of the things I've run into... um, in ministry, with particularly with substance abuse and a substance ab- addiction, is that um, people run back to that substance with great rapidity, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't give them the opportunity to find themselves in. Uh, you know, entrenched in spiritual things. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying all the right things. They want to repent. It's a, it's a repentance with sorrow. I mean, they're brokenhearted. I cannot use this drug anymore. I can't go back to it. I can't mm-hmm. go back to it. But they don't get a season of clean living. Right. Right, And so because they they don't get a season of clean living, it prohibits them and keeps them from finding their way into fellowship. So there's a whole nother cycle, spiritual cycle that's taking place that a person comes and they dips their toe into the Mm -hmm. church and, and they get a taste for that. They know the fellowship. They see that it's good but they don't stay in that place long enough for it to actually have an effect because they go back to the drug addiction and it interrupts the, the, the proper cycle, the proper pattern. That's totally it. And it happens so often. It's it's heartbreaking. And, and a lot of times I will recommend someone who keeps relapsing to go into um, a facility, a rehabilitation mm. facility, just to get a month of Clean living into their life, not because it's their the 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 rehabilitation center is going to be able to provide them with anything spiritual, but just speaking to what you're talking about in terms of the swings, it will put a silence to those heavy swings so that when they come back to reality, they can be a properly functioning part of the body of Christ.
0: Right. So, the what you're what you're describing is kind of a cycle that we see, and so we we talk about this in in the Bible Institute, but there's the, there's this pattern that plays out. I describe it as a belief cycle. So something happens to someone in their life. Um, and then that produces a perception. So this produces the way they see the world. And then out of that, they start to behave, right? So they, you know, they behave based on their perception, which then produces consequences. And then that reaffirms the thing that they start believing on. This Mm -hmm. is what's true about me. So an example would be, you know, I got treated poorly as a kid. So then that act then produces the perception that I can't trust other people. So the behavior would be that I'm guarded and the consequences that I would feel isolated. And then that would start to create a belief that I'm maybe not enough. And when we start moving back around to the behavior, When we don't have the ability to walk in the spirit, as you're mentioning, when we haven't received Christ, you know, when we don't know what sanctification looks like, when we don't have any access to that, then what we implement in the behavior part of that cycle is that uh, we find whatever is accessible to us. Mm -hmm. so if it's that phone in our pocket if it's pornography if we were in you know in a community where we have access to substances then that is our means of escape and then we get the consequence of that Mm -hmm. so what's the consequence well um you know i start to find that it helps and that besetting sin right then turns into what scripture tells us is a stronghold and it starts to take hold of us and then you know the perception is this is the only thing that can really provide me some relief. So then the behavior is to do it again. Mm-hmm. And before we know it, we've built this whole neurological network around this substance or process that actually is our haven and our tormentor, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's devastating. So it produces this belief that, you know, I'm worthless, uh, you know, I'm a junkie, I'm not enough, I'm humiliation and shame and shame. So I think, what we see, and and this is kind of what we talk about in in the Bible Institute as well, is there's this shame cycle that starts to build in the belief cycle. The shame cycle looks like, you know, I feel overwhelmed by life, so life squeezes us, and then uh, we need some form of escape. And so we reach to that thing that that feels good or provides that momentary relief, and it works until we come down out of it. And you know, in that teeter-totter Moves back down the other way, and as it does, then we get hit with the accuser of the brethren, mm-hmm. uh, the shame that comes with, um, you know, what this means about us. And the only thing that provides relief from that shame is that process. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we see people like you're describing that are so interlocked that man, there needs to be some massive intervention to be able mm-hmm. to get a hold of them for them to find some form of. Escape.
1: Yeah. And, you know, through talking about this uh, with you before, especially in terms of pornography, I think it was something that was really eye opening to me as a pastor who often sees porn addiction as primarily an issue of lust, sin, lustful behavior, and, and, a, and a sin that can be dealt with as lust. But what I've come to realize is that it's Definitely began that way, mm-hmm. but over time, because you get stuck in that shame cycle, mm-hmm. right? You get yes. stuck stuck in that belief cycle. That a lot of times, porn addiction is much more complex than just someone feels lustful, feels For the sure. need to to you know uh, get some sort of of, of release. Right. Um, it actually is part of a, a habit that you've built that says, "When I feel bad, yes." I need something to relief relieve that feeling yeah, exactly, and so it's more than just lust it's yeah. true addiction
0: yeah when i when I meet with it's a lot of times it's young men, but it's not just young men, I mean we have grown men and women who wrestle with pornography addiction and um but a lot of times I sit with them, and they are just so um heavy with shame, you know, and I think one place that's helpful to take them in scripture is Uh, We need them to have a Romans 7 regeneration, right? This recognition of Paul going, man, I I do what I don't want to do. And that's where they're at. And Mm -hmm. that's usually where they stay. I do what I don't want to do, but I keep doing it. What's the matter with me? But what we need for them to get to is where paul resolves that well man thanks be to jesus christ and we move them into romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus and who can walk after the spirit and not after the flesh and what's so important about that is like man uh just because you are saved doesn't mean you know you're no longer condemned to to hell there's therefore now no condemnation but you surely can live in condemnation on earth yeah right and so what happens is they're so covered in shame, they're not receiving that grace saying, hey, you know, this is, this is the reality of my flesh. You know, Sam said something the other day where he's like, your flesh is never going to change. It, your flesh is always going to be the same, this is Sam, the same mm-hmm. dirty dog. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. and it's true. It's like, we just need to get to the point where we're like, well, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, when we, when our, our flesh draws us to some sort of lust um, or some sort of fleshly solution, we say, that makes sense that I did that. And that is what disrupts the shame cycle. So mm-hmm. it's not going to happen by us abstaining, but it's going to happen when we, when we sin and we go, that makes sense that I sinned. Instead of you know, wallowing in pain and, and needing some form of escape... And then we, all we can reach for in that moment of escape is the, you know, the very thing that's... The
1: thing that's most accessible.
0: Yeah. yeah. So we need to be able to say that makes sense and we receive God's grace. There is therefore now no condemnation. We can walk in victory from that moment.
1: Mm. Yeah, I like that. The, the grace, the cycle of belief in grace, the, the, yes. the, um, the unconditional love, the sense of unconditional love, the, the sense of unconditional acceptance in Christ is really the only thing that could ultimately break the cycle of shame and, and disappointment. Absolutely. Now, um, we haven't gotten into this yet, but, but I think it's important to ask you what the, the definition of addiction would be within the clinical setting. So from a secular perspective, from a psychological perspective, uh, can you just frame how the world would see and understand addiction? And then we can kind of get into some of the biblical perspectives.
0: The clinical world bases their perspective on anything based on observations, right? And so they conclude that it's both a complex brain disorder and a mental illness. And so basically um, addiction is framed as a disease, you Mm -hmm. know, and um, this is concerning, you know, uh, mostly because what that, uh, does for the for the person we're meeting with is that it removes a lot of the agency that they have and a lot of responsibility they have in terms of how they can manage and challenge this. And we see this a lot in uh, recovery programs. You know, uh, one of the more popular ones is, the, is AA, the 12 steps mm-hmm. program. And man, as a clinician, I've seen a lot of people um, stop using drugs and alcohol with 12 step programs. And so, um, I think that they're really helpful in that way. My, my main concern is that it, um, it doesn't really address the root issue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in AA, they talk a lot about, um, being powerless, you know, over their addiction. And, um, I don't think that that's wrong necessarily, but, but it does frame them in a way where they are vulnerable. Uh, and so they're constantly, um, tethered to the process Mm -hmm. rather than there being real victory in their life. And they do talk about, you know, having a a higher power. Um, My concern with a higher power is that it doesn't, the the higher power in AA doesn't align with the God of the Bible, Uh, mostly in that it, um, we don't, there's no concept of acknowledging sin or responsibility. So I, I say that not to minimize the severity of addiction. You know, people, um, you know, their lives are being wrecked by alcoholism, drug use, and um, but what happens is at some point in their life, um, sin, whether it be theirs or people around them, has impacted them, and now they are you know bound to this sin, and and it's needful to be able to acknowledge that. And so, mm-hmm. um, if we don't have a cure, right, and we are bound to a process, then it just becomes another form of enslavement. And so that's something that I think, you know, in terms of understanding uh, the clinical process and how we manage that as believers.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that I, I hear with family members who are, are addicts who struggle with that is that they refer to themselves forever, perpetually mm-hmm. as addicts while well, I'm an addict, even if they haven't had a drink in 30, 30 years, mm-hmm. right? And so I wonder how good that rhetoric is in light of a biblical worldview yeah right like when we when we're trying to create and establish an identity, um we know that we're all sinners,, mm-hmm. and all of us have our different cup of tea, right, like all of us have our different flavor of sin that we indulge. But at the end of the day, we are not defined by mm-hmm. our sin because we're seen as righteous before the living God. When right. he sees us, he sees us as blood washed. And, and so, so I sometimes am concerned, especially with the nature of like the higher power. Mm-hmm. That higher power has no character. Mm-hmm. Right? He's he's he has no personage. Mm-hmm. Um you can kind of he could be a doorknob, right? right? You can you could assert um that higher power to really any entity sure. or subject of your focus. But the truth is the God of the Bible has a character Mm -hmm. and he has a personality and he has great, great love for us. Mm -hmm. So much so that he's willing to say, I know you struggle with that, but that's not who you are. That's not really who you are. You're, you're my child.
0: And, and because of that personage and that character, um, and that relationship, he also has a purpose and Mm -hmm. a plan for us. And it isn't just to abstain, right? It's, it's to, to walk forward in victory. And so what we find is, uh, you know, people good in with good intentions are are holding back from this thing. And it instead of them getting to to run the race that's set before them. You know, and so that's what we want to see with um, you know, people, you know, that have addiction, we want to see them take hold of what God has for them, not just to untangle them from an addiction, mm-hmm. but to for them to be rehabilitated into running a race.
1: You know yeah. they're not forever sidelined because of their addiction. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so we think about the biblical construct, you know, it's like, um It's engaging with substance and process that acts as a solution, right? To um, reduce pain and then progresses into an idol, right? So that's what the biblical model of addiction is. and so we know that it is um, it is a solution. And what we've seen, you know, we can see from the garden that God created man and woman. He placed them in the garden. He created them specifically with needs. And when they chose to walk away from Him, from that relationship through sin, um, it removed the place where all of those needs were met. Right. So now we've, you know, since the beginning, uh, mankind has been trying to have the kingdom without the king. You know, mm-hmm. we have all these illegitimate solutions for legitimate needs. That God gave us and it can look like anything. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is we find that solution that works for us, and it's typically what's most accessible. And then as we partake in it, it becomes an idol for us. We yeah. we found it to be a haven. And then over time it becomes, uh, you know, we're indebted to it and we are Yeah, a from, slave a ha- to it. from a
1: haven to a high place, if you yes. will. And so yeah. now you've got to travel to get there. And you are your job is to observe it instead yes. of it instead of it serving you. You're now serving serving it. it. Yeah,
0: that's ac- that's absolutely it. And we in the scriptures describe that as a stronghold. You know, so in in that time, um, Paul talks about it in Second Corinthians, but he, he says that you know we can take hold of those strongholds because we're uh, this is a spiritual battle. So there's mm-hmm. these spiritual strongholds and that 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 concept of a stronghold, it's, it is a fortress, you know, it's like a a place of refuge during a war. And man, if our stronghold is in some earthly thing, um, it becomes that it, it once was our haven, but then it becomes a high place, something Mm -hmm. that uh, now imprisons us. So.
1: Yeah. And it must, it has to be pulled down. Yes. But we are, we are in the spirit capable of pulling it down. In fact, it's, it's one of our objectives. Right. As people in a warfare, um, we are we are tasked. We are made responsible for pulling down strongholds, not ignoring them, right. not hiding them away. We're 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 supposed to destroy them so that they have no more authority over our lives.
0: Right, and so that's where it goes into that cycle that I was describing earlier, where it's like we need to understand where this came from. Well, it's like. You know, we're not looking to become a victim, but it is helpful to understand that, hey, there's things that have happened in our life that have produced perceptions yeah. um, that then have led to us looking for accessible solutions that then reaffirm this thing and pull us into the cycle. And as we see that, then we have something to surrender. Yeah,
1: I, I love that because so, like a stronghold or a fortress couldn't be built overnight. Right. So let's stop pretending like this, this edifice just appeared out of sure. nowhere. Okay, it came from somewhere. But once you know it's architectural plans, mm-hmm. tearing it down becomes much easier, right? right. Like when you can see where the cornerstones are, when you can see how it was built, mm-hmm. well, then you can be much more decisive in terms of how it comes down. Let's take a moment right here to hear
2: from Pastor Mike Renault of Living Faith Boston. Hi, I'm Mike Renault, pastor at Living Faith in Boston, Massachusetts. And if you're considering learning the Word of God, Living Faith Bible Institute would be a good place for you. The good thing about LFBI is that you're not just learning from an academic standpoint. You're learning from actual practitioners that do, in fact, know the book. These are pastors and men who are leading churches, doing the work themselves, since they can give you a firsthand real-life knowledge of what it means to learn the Bible in that context. Some of you may have a call in your life for the pastorate uh, to be a missionary, to serve the Lord in other parts of the world. Living Faith Bible Institute can prepare you in a way that you can be equipped with the Word of God and given practical tools, being held accountable in your ministry right where you're at. If you're interested in learning more or you want to enroll in lfbi go to lfbi.org
0: we want to understand um what are some uh, markers right what we can find to look for and i think it you know over time something that like sin is pleasurable for a season and you know as it is pleasurable it, it almost doesn't seem like that big of a deal or or Problemsome for them until it starts to take hold of them. So we see one marker is that the pleasure of it starts to dissipate and it just becomes this bondage, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're meeting with somebody and, you know, uh, a lot of times people will come and talk to me about, yeah, I have this many drinks a week. Um, But then you start to see that it's not something that they're enjoying. It's not something they're doing with friends. You know, it's like, oh, you drink alone at night. And it's just to take the edge off. And there's all kinds of ways that they can talk about that. So we want to look for for markers that reveal, you know, that um, someone is maybe starting to be taken over by a, a stronghold. And one of those is that pleasure starts to to pass. Right. So the novelty of the sin starts to wear off and. The individual begins to feel dependent and then they start wrestling with responsibility. So um, they start blame shifting. You know, we start seeing this behavior in them and uh, they are searching for a way to find relief and then they're deceived by the severity of it. So they start to minimize, justify, intellectualize. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're convincing themselves and trying to convince the people in their life that this is normal or okay. And then they start to deceive others by spinning webs of lies about Mm -hmm. it. So when we see these types of markers, it's important for us to hone in that this is like you're talking about. This is this fortress that's being built in their life. And if we don't call attention to it for them to acknowledge it and to confess it and forsake it, then, um, you know, it's going to to lay roots in their life that will be really difficult to dismantle.
1: I think I think it would be really helpful if you took those markers and you walk them through a circumstance. So the easiest one would maybe be alcoholism. Yeah. Could you just use sure. alcoholism as an example to explain each of these markers and how the stronghold is established, and just give some people uh, give people an idea of how how that might be built in someone's life? Sure. I
0: mean, so you think about somebody uh, drinking is such a drinking alcohol is such a, um, a social you know, like lubricant. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I have people who've come in and, and they're always trying to find the right amount of alcohol that gives them that like extroverted interaction that they're looking for. So it's like this, you know, They're they're reaching for like that perfect version of themselves. And so mm-hmm. what happens is they, as they, they do that, they have this pleasure experience, and then they're always searching for it and they start to lose it because now they're consuming so much alcohol,
1: just trying to find yeah, your body, your body itself is creating a greater and greater tolerance, Right. which is w- a warning to you yes. that you've, you've gone too far. If you can, if you can have four or five drinks in an hour and not be drunk, this is dangerous for sure. your body. You know, like even your, even your anatomy, your biology is, is screaming out like, Hey, Absolutely. Yeah. you're going too far.
0: So then, um, and that, that moves into the, the second marker, which is this wrestling with responsibility. So, um, it starts to become a, like a catch-all or like a multi-tool. So Mm. it's not just a social lubricant anymore. It's like, um, a way for me not to feel when, you know, about this relational distress. And, and so I'm not taking responsibility that I'm kind of allowing this thing to start to creep into and permeate into all areas of my life. And then I minimize it. It's like, it's not that big of a deal. I hear this kind of stuff all the time where it's like, you know, I work hard. So what's the matter with me? Like, you know, going to the bar after work, you mm-hmm. know, that's not, that's not strange. It, it's what people do, right? Happy hour, you know? Yeah. And so it, it's normalized in their life. So they're starting to deceive themselves. And then in order to maintain the thing that they've now become addicted to, they have to try to justify that to everyone around them. So that looks like spinning the lies, right? So where were you after work? You know, now I have right. to come up with a reason why I've been doing that every night. Yeah. And so it slowly becomes, and this is what you mentioned earlier, and this is what happens a lot of times in the church, is that we're not allowed to acknowledge in, in some you know, unhealthy church cultures to acknowledge our sin, right? So, well, I don't know what to do with this. I'm gonna deal with it, but I don't know what to do with it right now. So I'm just gonna tuck that away I've got so much stuff going on ministry wise we're here and so I just kind of push this thing into this back room and when I feel distressed I go hang out in there by myself yeah. right mm-hmm. and so it gets to grow and grow until it's it actually is a big compartment of their life that they don't know what to do with
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's dangerous and it's sad and it and when it and when it comes to light it's become so big that the effects are are much more devastating. Obviously, the the greater the stronghold is when it comes down, uh, the effects are much more um, pronounced. And so let's talk about a little bit about the solutions and how to deal with it. Um, How do we move forward in dealing with it? I think this will give us insight in terms of, you know, personally, if we have things that are in the realm of addiction... How do we deal with it personally, but also beyond that as ministers, Mm -hmm. what is it that we need to know in order to help people find their way out of these situations and deal with the strongholds in their lives?
0: Yeah, I think the, just the, the general response to that is, is that, you know, we need in order to break the bonds of addiction, we, you know, when we're in that cycle and we move towards that behavior, we need to have access to responding in the spirit. If we don't have access to responding to the Spirit, we need to understand why. Well, do we have the Spirit? Um, mm-hmm. Is it quenched in our life? If not, we need the Spirit. Well, how do you do that? Well, I need, I need Christ, and I need to repent of my sin. So we need salvation from mm-hmm. the get-go because... Yeah. Without salvation we're a slave to sin yeah it, it's our it's our only nature,
1: and if we beat one addiction, we will just replace absolutely. it with another because it is as you say our nature absolutely
0: and and um you know there's a lot of better addictions out there, you sure. know normal ones yeah yeah and and that's and that's scary you yeah. know it's like there's um you know sin is sin, but not all sin is the same, mm-hmm. right, and some consequences of sin are more consequential it's like yeah so um it can seem like oh I'm doing a lot better, but you still you still have a, a illegitimate solution mm-hmm. that has become your idol, right? And um, man, uh, you know, people who are consumed with some severe addiction, uh, they come to know the Lord in a real way, whereas a lot of people who have normal like acceptable addictions, it's like well they just lived their whole life missing the mark of holiness, mm-hmm. right? And the only way that we can be uh, holy is for us to have Christ. So have to have Christ, you know? Um, and then in that we can move towards sanctification, right? And in sanctification, um, we can come boldly before the Lord, Hebrews 4.16, and God provides us the strength and the means to live the life, Philippians 2.13, right? And um, He didn't create us to be that way. We are His workmanship, it says in Ephesians 2.10. There's all these precepts and promises that in sanctification, we have real footing, mm-hmm. real spiritual footing. The one that just, uh, that we are desperate for is First Peter chapter 1, that uh, we can be partakers of the divine nature Mm -hmm. it's like man without that we're lost like if we can't be partakers of the divine nature we can't actually take on the knowledge of god that we can't have his divine power um man we are just doing we're just it's symptom substitution at that point I'm I'm trading out this demon for a, a yeah. lesser demon, you know. Yeah, and so we we are desperate to have his divine nature.
1: And when I think about sanctification, I can't help but think of discipleship. Yes, and, I, and we don't often define discipleship this way, but this conversation has led me to think this way. Discipleship could be defined as learning how to have greater and greater access to our divine God. Mm-hmm. Right. And it might start very small and and lowly and a little bit at a time. It it might, you know, you're just learning as a baby, drinking milk, Mm -hmm. and it's very... But the further along you get, it makes addiction and sin greater, uh, more and more reprehensible, Mm -hmm. right? It has a a greater and greater um, disdain in our heart. Uh, We we begin to hate it Mm -hmm. the closer that we get to God, which at the end of the day, insulate us, insulates us from falling back into those sins. Right. And so discipleship, the process of sanctification is, uh, is in many ways about getting greater and greater access to God so that we're not going and accessing the world.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. We can't just take away the, the, you know, the deadly thing. We mm-hmm. have to replace it. Something that brings life, you yeah. know? And, yeah. Um, yeah. Discipleship. Uh, I mean discipleship operates within the local church. We can't Rambo life, you know, like we can't just, you know, walk through life on our own. We need, um, we need what the church provides us. And, you know, I say the church is the most effective in treatment facility on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. We have access to everything we need. We're surrounded by accountability. Uh, We're reminded of the truth. We're being uh, pushed into active, meaningful ministry. And we have the experiential experience, right? The experiential effect of worship, Mm -hmm. right? Like moving into a place of corporate worship where we're surrounded by people who are acknowledging the reality that without Christ, we're nothing. And we're surrendering ourselves and glorifying him, which redirects our minds, our hearts and minds to the truth. It's like, this is what this is about. So without that process, you know, within the confines of the local church, um, we can be Um, just holding our breath and and doing our best just to not fall in again.
1: Yeah. So how can we help as believers who want to make an investment, who want to help people who are struggling in their addiction, um, which there are many more of them in our congregations than we could ever realize. Mm Mm-hmm. How do we get them to a place of victory? How do we come alongside them and be the help, be the counselor that they need us to be?
0: The root of addiction often is fear. When we think about that cycle, that perception mm-hmm. that leads us into those behaviors that are just reaching for what's accessible, it's typically that we're afraid of something. So if we can refocus their fear, it says in Second Timothy seven, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear but of power and of love and a sound mind. So if we have a spirit of fear, we haven't been given that, but we can live into that. Mm. And when we live into that, we don't have power. You know? We have self, you know, self-preserving power, but we don't have the power of the spirit and we don't have a sound mind. Instead you know, of Christ keeping our heart and mind, we are you know, basing reality on our feelings. Mm-hmm. You know? And so we need to be founded on what is true. And rather than being identified with, you know, our sin or our addiction. Yeah, and the next thing that we want to help them do is to shift forward in faith. So this is to move forward uh, in a in a in a position of victory. So according to your faith, be it unto you. So this looks like us knowing ourselves. Romans seven eighteen says, "For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing." We need to know what we're capable of, and then that allows us to follow Christ. Uh, allows us to walk in the spirit and we want to guide them in these steps, you know, so we're walking with them. So you you mentioned discipleship earlier. It's like, man, we need to be living life with people and being able to remind them of truth as they move around that cycle. Every time they get to that place where they could inject, you know, the addiction, Mm -hmm. whatever that thing might be, we want to remind them of what's true, giving them opportunities to choose to walk in the light rather than moving into that old stronghold. Mm
1: Mm-hmm which includes following Christ and walking in the spirit and coaching people how to do that. Obviously we do that in discipleship, but it's a, it should be a regular part of, of church life is to say, Hey, you know what? There is a thing. Walking in the spirit is a thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you gotta, let me help you remind, remind you how to mortify your flesh to, to, Allow God to live through you to surrender whatever it is you feel, mm-hmm. and that's so, really a messy and difficult process sometimes.
0: It is. You're, you're sitting with them, and and you know, like you're finding them sitting there, holding the the sin, the the um, besetting thing, the stronghold, whatever it's become and seeing it as an option. And we want to be able to identify what that is, to challenge the shame that comes along with it. We do that with truth and which then produces faith, replacing fear, Mm -hmm. and which then produces fruit, replacing the addiction. So we just need for them to have some form of transformative um, uh, experience, right? So instead of um, you know, them going down that negative path. We want them to be able to see that, man, what happens when you surrender? What happens when you um, challenge that that old belief and you move towards something true?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And they start to see victory in their life. And so um, that four week time span uh, starts to be reduced because they've been spending their time in ministry around people that love them, um, moving towards things that matter. And um, they start to see that, you know, that, dopamine, pain, pleasure thing balance out, and they really start to have true victory in their life.
1: Yeah. So one of the the mistakes that I think I see ministers making, biblical counselors making, is that when someone you described as them holding their addiction, holding their sin, Mm. right? And it looks a certain way. And that person is used to justifying it. Mm -hmm. They're used to making excuses for it. They're used to saying, but I can't let go, right? Right. And so maybe their grip on that thing is is tight. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes a pet to them, you know, and and they can't see their lives without it, right? So it's completely integrated. And what a biblical counselor will do, mistakenly, is they will say, well, just let go," and
2: mm-hmm. like, "Come on, just
1: stop, stop, it. stop, stop doing mm-hmm. that, just stop doing it." Now, spiritually speaking, that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. They need to. They need to stop. Uh, but that's not necessarily how you get them there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there has to be both, you know, you talked about acknowledging it, um, understanding it. A biblical counselor can help someone to do that, to help see it from every perspective, mm-hmm. see it as the stronghold that it is. But then there has to be steps to coaching them, to letting it go. And then, and then, you know, the ex- access to it mm-hmm. gets further. So it's like push. Now we've pushed it across the room. Right. And and now we've we've pushed it across the street, and mm-hmm. now now we've locked it away, and it's way over there. And so while that person always has access, they always know what that sin looks like, they always know how to get it if they want to. It becomes less and less appealing because mm-hmm. the biblical counselor, instead of just saying just stop, just stop doing that, drop drop that now, yes. be done, they are teaching them how to push it away and then envelop themselves in mm-hmm. all the wonderful things that are good about knowing Christ and being a part of the body. This this is hard work.
0: Yeah. This is, is not an
1: easy thing to do.
0: Yeah, we talk about that We um, in the, the counseling lab, we were, um, Josh O'Hara was teaching today. He gave this incredible uh, analogy. He was using basketball as an example where, um, you know, if, if the enemy is scoring on you, so he's, he's using this basketball analogy. It's like, we need to get on defense. And so what does defense look like? Defense looks like coming up with a plan to, to defend the enemy, but it's not enough just to defend the enemy. We also have to have an offense. Mm-hmm. So with our counselee, you know, the person that, we're, you know, that's, you know, in the stronghold, they need to have a defense. So this is putting off the old man, yeah. right? But then there's also an offense. We need to be proactive. And as we're proactive, you know, we're, we're not nearly as likely, you know, the more points we score, right? We're not nearly as likely to be defeated, Right. Right. So we become, um, uh, encouraged and, uh, by, you know, our, uh, you know, our, our points that we've made and, and therefore, um, we're not so discouraged or likely to just throw our hands up and let them have their way. Yeah. Right. So, um, I think it's huge. It takes a lot of time, right. To, to develop that type of, um, insight and capacity. And man, that's so true. It's like. Um, when when someone comes to know the Lord, they're like a child, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to um, care for them like a child. And child children make mistakes, and we have to remind them of the things in that they're you know endeavoring to overcome time and time again, right? And so uh, it really comes back to wanting to understand their heart and being able to endeavor to speak to where they're at mm-hmm. and to care for them and yeah. to uniquely provide them. Um, guidance so they can recover themselves along the way.
1: Yeah. And I think to that, um, we can't be disgusted Mm -hmm. by their sin, which is another mistake. I think a lot of times, you know, the whole stop it, drop that thing is Mm -hmm. rooted in the fact that maybe we're a little disgusted by the fact that that's where they find themselves. And so so we don't want to give the perception that we are disgusted with them or despise them. Right, yeah. so we can't be afraid. You know, one of the things that I find myself saying a lot of times in a in a counseling situation here at the church is, you know, I'm not I'm not afraid of the sin that you just shared with Mm-mm. me. Like I can tell that you were afraid to share that with Absolutely, me. Absolutely, yeah. But I'm not afraid of hearing what you just said. Mm-hmm. In fact, many, many, many other people have struggled with those very same things, mm-hmm. and I've watched them get victory. Mm-hmm. And that is not that's not a, a false statement that I make. I'm not saying that just to give them false hope. Mm-hmm. It's the truth. That there is no sin under the sun that is of any surprise. There's no in sure. new invention of men, and so mm-hmm. whatever it is that they find themselves addicted to, I as the biblical counselor am responsible for acknowledging it, not being afraid of it, mm-hmm. and then with walking with them and how to deal with it.
0: Absolutely, and and you know, and just even to say, it's like um, we need to take heed lest we fall too. You know, there's. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no difference between us and them, and that um, you know, in terms of how God sees that besetting sin compared to the ones that we find most accessible, and so that provides some um, humility and perspective. Yes. That whatever anyone does bring, maybe maybe you are sitting with somebody, and it it's like, whoa, that's a lot. You mm-hmm. know, um, we quickly can you know uh, you know readjust to acknowledge the reality that man, God sees that person's stronghold just like ours.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. John, there's so much to say about addiction. Um, I mean, I guess the recommendation would be if you want to learn more about this, start taking the biblical counseling classes. Come at, to class. Yeah. So we've got, uh, explain to us the program of study. Um, we've got several different stages mm-hmm. of development and training for people who want to be better counselors, biblical counselors.
0: Yeah. So we have an intro class. It's, it's a um, general uh, theology of biblical counseling, um, we do get into some uh, subject matter there in terms of specific things that people are going through, but generally it 's what does the Bible say about how to join with people who are suffering and then we have lab classes which we 're doing this semester, mm-hmm. a lot of fun, so we have three labs that we 're going to be doing uh, where we dig into more methodology of applicating
1: um, what it looks like to sit with someone. Yeah. So. And we go, when you get further into subject matter, so yes, one semester might be about relationships and dealing with, with interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one might deal more with addiction or fear, anxiety mm-hmm. and depression. So we have these different tiers and we are yeah. developing more programming. We're hoping to, to create a class that is helps pastors, um, develop their own biblical counseling ministries. Right. So that's in the foreseeable future. And so, um, Man, a lot for people to engage with.
0: Yeah, it's exciting.
1: It is exciting. Um, On top of all that, Mm -hmm. you and I found time to write a book over the last year. And so this might be a good opportunity to promote the book, get people to buy it.
0: Yeah, Yeah. this is my universal statement about the book. Writing a book with Brandon is like carrying furniture with your dad when you're a kid. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's like I have this corner and my dad's like, you got it, buddy. That's what it's like writing a book uh, with you. Or
1: (laughs) the way I imagined it when you gave that analogy was, pick it up. Come on. We've got five more steps.
0: I guess it depends on your dad.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so,
0: It was a little bit of both. Okay. All right. Probably.
1: Which I apologize for. But at the the end of the day, we did write a book. We wrote a book. And we think, we hope, we believe that it's profitable to people. Do you want to introduce the book? Here it is right here. Here, I'll let you hold it and talk about yeah. it.
0: So Path Will Lit, uh, this is a uh, theology and philosophy and biblical counseling and um, such a awesome time writing it. God taught me a ton just from, you know, the time we dedicated to studying for it and excited to see what how God uses it. We're endeavoring to record an audiobook. Um, So we'll see.
1: Yeah, hopefully in 2023.
0: Yeah, so we're going to... We're going to read this book. So, not only, I didn't know when we were going to, when we wrote this, that I was going to have to read it. Yeah. And yeah. We got to read
1: it too. So, get your corner of the couch, bro. Yeah. That's right. (laughs) Get it
0: together. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But I think we we think it is a tool that is a uh, foundational tool for people who are getting into biblical counseling. This is kind of the framework, the theological framework necessary for learning. From building strategies and methods on top of. Yeah. Yeah. So cool, man. Thanks for sharing that. Love you, bro. Love you too. And we love you. We're grateful for you. And we're thankful anytime you hang out with us. John and I love having conversations about biblical counseling. And this is just what we do when we're hanging out. So the fact that you're with us uh, only makes it better. And we're glad that you listened in. And we do want to invite you, if you're interested in learning more about biblical counseling or ministry and ministry leadership or theology in general, we want to invite you to check out lfbi.org where you can learn about Living Faith Bible Institute, our program of study, our beliefs. and uh, and all the ways in which we've made ourselves available to you uh, at the low, low cost of $40 a credit hour, in fact, made ourselves available to you and help uh, to help train you, to help develop missionaries and church planters and pastors and leaders of all sorts to go into the whole world and disciple the nations. That's the objective. And so we hope that you'll join us, and uh, we pray that we'll get to see you again next week for another episode of The Postscript. God bless. Thanks for listening to The Postscript. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a rating and review in order to help other people find our podcast. If you value this show, please help us continue creating content by supporting Living Faith Bible Institute at lfbi.org support.